Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Idea Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Shanti Kalathal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. In our last episode, we discussed how many democratic societies, including those we consider to be consolidated, are experiencing a breakdown in consensus around and commitment to democratic institutions and values. This has certainly proved a dynamic authoritarian regimes can exploit. In this episode, we aim to zero in on the link between the complex global information environment and societies that are grappling with increasing political polarization. It's a vexing paradox that, despite having more information at their fingertips than ever before, people are having a harder time distinguishing fact from fiction. Some have posited that, faced with an overwhelming onslaught of news, people seem more likely to turn to a narrower set of information sources sharing news from like-minded perspectives. This doesn't necessarily help citizens and democracies make informed choices. Of course, when misinformation and disinformation spread by authoritarians and illiberal actors enters this fragmented information ecosystem, it could exacerbate political polarization even further. In fact, frequently, it's designed to do so. To help us identify how both domestic illiberal actors and foreign authoritarian regimes are intersecting in this space through a problematic mix of media manipulation and disinformation, we're very pleased to welcome to the podcast Moises Naim, a distinguished fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, here to discuss the intersection of globalization and polarization. Great to have you with us, Moises. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Thank you. So, Moises, you've described some of the governance crises that we've seen emerging in many democracies around the world as symptoms of what you call a political autoimmune disease um, and one that seems to be contagious. So I was hoping you could elaborate on this metaphor and tell us a little bit about what you think is at the root of this illness. Antipolitics, the notion that uh, politics as usual is no longer acceptable and that uh, Voters are willing to test and explore all kinds of uh, possibilities, including those that are not very democratic. Uh, it's the idea, you know, of uh, getting rid of anyone and e- everyone that has had anything to do with power uh, governing uh, in the past. Uh, we have seen that in a, in a lot of countries, and uh, where instead of trying to solve the defects and correct for the defects of democracy, democracy is done away with. And, um, and, and, and there are, of course, those that are interested in that and that uh, nurture and, and exacerbate the tensions and uh, shortcomings of democracy in order to um, get in power and have total control. What are some of the drivers of this anti-politics? Well, it's uh, the disappointment with the performance of democracy. In many countries, we have seen an increasing uh, propensity for gridlock in decision-making, in which you have very fragmented political systems, a lot of political parties, a lot of leaders, and each one with enough power to to veto everybody else but no one with sufficient power to impose an agenda, a platform, a view. 
and therefore very basic decisions that the country may need, some of them even urgent, are either postponed or um, diluted or you know taken with the minimum common denominator that gives the illusion that decisions and policies are made, but in fact uh, uh, is just an illusion because the, the deep important problem is left untouched. And you've identified in your writing this phenomenon of fragmentation that's really taken hold, and we see it in the media sphere, the political sphere, and in a way this is a big part of the paralysis. What would you imagine would help to start knit together some of the forces that would bring more cohesion over time? Or are we destined in at least the immediate future to face this um, kind of problematic fragmentation, at least for the foreseeable time? Some of the forces that are fragmenting power are structural, long-term, and hard to influence. I'm talking about uh, demography. I'm talking about uh, uh, urbanization. I'm talking about the creation of the largest middle class that has ever existed. And a middle class that comes with expectations, uh, with uh, resentments, with um, you know more active than ever. This is a connected, in fact, hyper-connected middle class that is also very active, that uh, is impatient with they want results now. Um, and so some of these forces are hard to touch. Others, however, uh, ought to be more amenable, are more amenable to intervention, to influence, to decision-making. And, and it, it's, again, it's, it's a slogan, but one that is very valid, and that is that democracy's problems are usually solved with more democracy. And so deepening democratic practices, strengthening checks and balances, uh, cleaning the system from uh, of uh, illiberal uh, uh, players that uh, very often are foreign, uh, and I'm t- talking about the, the, inter- the cyber interference in the politics of other countries that we have seen recently. So uh, it's a combination of recognizing what are the forces that are permanent. And, we, and identifying opportunities to intervene on those that are more um, susceptible to be molded by positive interventions. And broadly speaking, where would you say the advanced democracies are in this process of self-correction? Because in essence, that's, I think that's what you're saying, that the, the advantage of the democracies compared with other systems is that at a certain point, the response kicks in and there's self-correction. Do you feel as though we're close to meaningful self-correction, or are we still a ways off from that? It depends on the country. Take, for example, the case of Hungary, where Prime Minister Urban uh, became Prime Minister thanks to democracy, but immediately after that he started undermining democracy and essentially trying to neutralize the checks and balances uh, that are normal for any democracy. You know, the media, he got control of Congress. He, of course, also has great influence in the judiciary. Compare that to what is happening in Spain. It's also a country that has a very strong streak of anti-politics, where there is fatigue with the traditional powers uh, and and political parties that have governed Spain. Uh, But uh, you don't see uh, strong uh, initiatives to undermine democracy in, in Spain. So the comparison between Spain and Hungary, I think, is very telling.
So, you know, you alluded just now to this issue of foreign interference in democratic processes. And I, I saw that in a recent piece, you wrote that roughly 27 countries have been victims of political interference stemming from the Kremlin, for instance, with a focus on exacerbating existing divisions. So why, in your view, does the current information environment provide such a rich area of engagement for either a liberals or authoritarians or both? The reason for there are many reasons, as you know, and as you have in your own research, you, you have pointed out. One that I think is very important is what I call the trust paradox. As you know, uh, all the surveys around the world show that trust is declining. People don't trust their government, the private sector, not even their church, you know, the judicial system. You know, trust is in very short supply in a lot of countries. What is intriguing and, and perplexing is that at the same time that these citizens are mistrusting of all the institutions, they are willing to trust a message that comes in their social media uh, and immediately believe it and very often reproduce and disseminate it and retweet it or link that send it to their list of friends uh, and, and followers. So why is it that very, very skeptical uh, citizens that don't trust anybody are willing to trust uh, anon very often anonymous messages. That is, uh, the, well, the answer to that, of course, is has to do with identity. Those messages probably align with what you already think. They uh, represent what you, a group that you feel is, is you are identified with is your identity. And... Um, and, and therefore, you feel that you're willing to disseminate something without checking if it's true or not because it aligns with what you think. And that needs to be hopefully corrected, identified. Um, you know, there's something that can be done about that, I think. So here at the forum, we published several issue briefs on various aspects of this issue, actually, of the, the evolving global information environment, including on what we've called the demand side of the information crisis, that is looking at the cognitive factors, the psychological factors that make audiences more vulnerable to disinformation or more likely to spread messages, um, perhaps among their own peer groups. And that's a very tricky issue to get at, you know, and it, and it speaks to um, where trust is placed and where trust is not placed. So given the complexity of this, you know, what are some of the, what are some of the antidotes to the type of spread of misinformation that you're talking about, particularly when it relates so closely to how people see themselves and their identities? I think it's very important that society recognizes that this is an important problem and therefore deserves attention, resources, and become has to be a priority. I usually make the parallel. I, I use the example of what happened in the United States with smoking tobacco. Tobacco is highly addictive. Nicotine is highly addictive. The United States was one of the countries where more smokers uh, as, as percentage of the population existed, and yet the United States succeeded in um, essentially eradicating the addiction to tobacco. Um, the number, the, you know, just a sliver of a population in the United States smokes. 
So, and that was done through a variety of initiatives, uh, from taxes uh, to lawsuits against the companies to public education to in, in engaging the health sector and the politicians and so on. Um, so there was an all-out campaign to try to uh, get Americans to stop smoking. I think we need to do something like that to get uh, not Americans but uh, uh, internet users and social media users uh, to become more educated consumers. We, there, is, there should be some kind of consumer protection, uh, the equivalent of consumer protection for um, the, the social media that comes together with a very strong uh, society-wide campaign to educate uh, citizens to what I call click again. When you see a message that uh, it's provocative, it's controversial, sometimes it's aggressive, sometimes claims uh, some very extreme um, facts, just click again. Don't, don't just believe everything you get through the internet, even if it uh, is perfectly aligned to what you think. So clicking again has to be a, a very important campaign everywhere. And you've identified um, in your writing over the years this asymmetry that's evolved between systems that are open, that have um, the opportunities for wide-ranging free expression compared with closed societies. And one of the wrinkles that's emerged in this context is that, at least to a degree, the control societies, thinking here of China and Russia, such, such environments, um, they've managed to, at a minimum, manage political speech and the ability to coordinate in a, in a fairly uh, resilient way, whereas at the same time, certainly in the, in the, in the age of um, this explosive growth of social media, it's the open societies that are struggling with all of the issues that you and Shanti just discussed. And I'm wondering, you know, how, how should we think about that asymmetry? Because the additional challenge is that now we see Russia and other such countries are becoming quite adept at getting inside the social media uh, discussions within the open societies. Yes, one of, another very interesting paradox uh, has been that the United States and other Western democracy, democracies create uh, the te technologies that then are used by autocracies to undermine democracies. So democracy is creating the weapons, the tools, that the illiberals and the dictators of the world are using, which is a sad paradox, but it's, it's a reality we have to contend with. And so perhaps there is a technological fix to this. Perhaps uh, once it becomes clearer what kind of uh, ruthless competition is taking place between the United States and, and the likes of China and Russia and others, um, how high the stakes are, how important, how, you know, even though this is intangible and, and hard to grasp, it's very powerful in terms of the technologies that are undermining democracy, that are interfering with electoral processes, that are spreading um, and, and deepening uh, existing wedges in society. Uh, once uh, societies perhaps l discover the potency of these uh, weapons and, and the, the kind of enemies that are threatening the United States, perhaps there will be initiatives of all kinds that will allow societies to build the antibodies 
and the protections and, and to fortify themselves against the attacks uh, over the internet and social media by um, actors f sponsored, created, or even actually directed directly by dictators. So the speed with which these changes are happening are one feature, and it, it reminds me of a conversation I had recently with someone who works in the election observation sphere, and they observed that you know, until not so long ago, election observation was about observing the process within a country to make sure that that country's authorities held up to a certain standard. Today, you have that traditional challenge plus the prospect of external actors using digital tools to enter the space and manipulate it, which adds a, a very significant degree of difficulty. But this was never a part of the equation for what we might call traditional election observation for many, many years uh, leading up to the current digital period. That's a very good example and a very good point, uh, Chris. And uh, um, essentially, the era where elections were stolen, uh, the voting booth the day of the election is gone. And elections are stolen way before uh, in very stealthy ways, in very electronic ways that are uh, hard to observe and very difficult to, to detect. Um, so yes, uh, the elections are now stolen, um, not at, in the voting booth, but on cyberspace and not on the voting day, the day of the elections, but prior to that and perhaps even after that when the votes are counted. I think um, both of you have touched upon a point uh, about how authoritarian regimes are operating in this space. And some of it has to do with borrowing the legitimacy of actual civil society groups or institutions that do have democratic bona fides. Um, and the response to that has typically been, well, if you shine a light on these efforts and you unmask them and you make sure that they are not able to operate in this fashion, essentially cloaked in the legitimacy of others, um, that will help and it will help inoculate publics. But I'm also mindful of what you've said about these declining levels of trust. And I, I guess I'm worried that in an environment where we don't really know who is manipulating various organizations and where the broader public doesn't know who to trust, how do you mitigate against those ever-declining levels of trust in actual democratic institutions that do have legitimacy? Well, you have to fight impatience uh, on the part of the citizens and the voters, which is easy to say, very hard to do, because, you know, impatience is very often nurtured by desperation. Uh, these people cannot afford to be patients. Uh, they need health. They need medicines. They, they need uh, functioning schools. They need homes. And that creates uh, um, desperation and impatience and, um, and therefore mistrust uh, of democracy. It also nurtures the anti-politics. It's desperation. And, and uh, so th 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 those are areas of underperformance uh, of democracies in, in, a, in a lot of very large poor countries uh, and small poor countries too, uh, and medium-income countries. So um, it, it's very important to continue to explain that the answer is not a dictator. And I think what we see in, in any number of cases, some of them in the most recent year or two, um, are that people in settings that have corrupt and unaccountable governance will fight, often at great risk to themselves, to try to achieve a system that gives them 
meaningful responsiveness, transparency, thinking here of Gambia and Armenia and Venezuela and any number of other cases. And so I would say the underlying demand from populations for that sort of response from their governors remains the the challenge, which may be even more complex today with the ability to uh, manipulate and intervene, is, is achieving and sustaining that sort of response. Absolutely, Chris. And what you're talking about is uh, mafia states. And uh, I wrote a few years back an article in the journal Foreign Affairs explaining um, the nature of these mafia states. These are criminalized uh, states that break with the tradition in which there was a criminal entity outside government that somehow found a way to influence the government, either through extortion or threat or financial incentives or making people in government accomplices to to allow for some transactions that are illicit to take place. So that was the old way. The new way is that there is not such a thing as an outside criminal entity trying to influence the state, but the state becomes the criminal entity. And we we have seen that. And these are governments where um, their actions, their policies, their decisions are driven by uh, the central goal, which is to enrich um, the people in power and their family and friends and, and partners. Um, a lot of the foreign policies of, of soft countries, a lot of the domestic economic policies, the financial policies of these countries are criminalized um, and, and, and geared towards uh, the profits of a small clique that has taken over uh, and hijacked uh, the government. In, in a number of respects, we see that democratic societies are responding to some of the challenges that you've outlined in terms of the insinuation of um, malign actors in the information context using um, corruption um, to project influence. In many ways, the, the awareness phase has been critical because unless you understand something, it's hard to devise a response. So what, in your view, will be the, the next key step for democracies to respond to these very complex challenges that have emerged? There is not a single one-liner answer to that question because, as we have discussed, uh, uh, the phenomenon takes very different forms. So, in fact, we're talking about a collection of of, of events and and practices and distortions. What is clear is that, um, hopefully, Populations will begin to recognize uh, that their hopes for a very simple solution by uh, a charlatan, essentially, that promises uh, immediate, almost miracles to solve the the nation's situation uh, are very fraudulent and end up in tears. I am, of course, now saying that from the perspective of a Venezuelan. I am from Venezuela. I think and I hope that the great majority of my fellow Venezuelans who trusted and believed that Hugo Chavez first and Nicolás Maduro second with their simple one-line you know, promises uh, that led to the, the most catastrophic um, collapse of a state, um, that we have seen in Latin America in a long, long time, 
uh, that there has been some learning. I, I, I hope that the, the, the very dramatic, tragic experience with Hugo Chavez first and Nicolás Maduro uh, has left um, an imprint in the culture, in the political culture of Venezuelans, where they are going to be a little bit more careful in supporting charlatans. Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Moises? I'm reading a fascinating book uh, by Frank Fukuyama. Um, His title is Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. And it's a fascinating, I think very serious, uh, at times surprising take on the importance of identity uh, in politics and how this very subjective uh, dimension ends up having very concrete consequences in politics. And I'm reading a book by Alexander Cooley and John Heathershaw called Dictators Without Borders, which is at root a book about the dark side of globalization. And while it uses Central Asia as a, as a regional case study, it really talks about how globalization has driven some very problematic um, uh, features of what's emerged. And in this case, it's been the um, political elites from many of the countries in that region who've ensconced themselves in networks in open societies and projected their own influence in ways that's harmful in terms of corruption, in terms of um, repressing dissidents from their countries beyond their borders and such things. Well worth reading. And I'm reading a very interesting CSIS report called Influence and Infrastructure, the Strategic Stakes of Foreign Projects by Jonathan Hillman, which discusses the stakes of infrastructure projects beyond simply the economic dimension. Um, He argues it's important to have a framework to think about the strategic aspects of foreign infrastructure investment, and he draws on historical examples to understand different avenues of influence through infrastructure. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Moises Naim again for joining us. No, thank you. Happy to have been here. And that's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, we recommend reading Moises Naim's weekly column in El País, especially his recent article published in January 2019, The Globalization of Polarization. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence, We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org slash ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Chris Walker with Shanti Kalathal and Moises Naim. We hope you have enjoyed this discussion on the intersection of globalization and polarization and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.